I don't know if you've noticed, but true crime podcasts are having kind of a moment right now. So we thought we'd hop on. Specifically, have you guys heard about a guy named Paul LaRue? He was born in Zimbabwe and raised in South Africa and worked as a cybersecurity entrepreneur before creating an international online criminal empire. Sort of like Silk Road before Silk Road, if you follow these kind of things. Eventually, the DEA infiltrated his operation and brought him down. But not before a bunch of people died and LaRue had worked with most of the rogue nations and criminal syndicates on Earth. Well, would you believe we got two of the DEA agents who worked on the case? Lou Milioni and Tommy Sindrick? As well as the author of a new book about the case called Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire, to come in and talk to us? We didn't either. But we hope you'll listen, because they have some crazy stories. Not much could live up to that, but we do have some other fun segments on this episode. Tech editor Alex George went to Las Vegas to hang out with a bunch of sinks and toilets for some reason. Kevin's on his way to Houston's enormous livestock show and rodeo. And we find some interesting uses for sawdust. Get off the dark web and behave yourselves, y'all. I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. We have some special guests on today's podcast. It is all of the folks of Hunting LaRue, which is an amazing new book about the takedown of a criminal mastermind and the DE agents who did it. It was written by Elaine Shannon, who is here with us. Welcome, Elaine. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> and we also have Tommy Sindrick and Lou Milioni. Hi. Welcome, good, guys. Good Hi. How are you? <laughs> and so what were your jobs? How were you guys involved in making this book happen? Well, I was one of the case agents on the case. So I was interviewed by Elaine and kind of filled in a lot of the details regarding the operation itself. Okay. And Lou? So I was one of the team leaders or whatever on the case. The and- boss. <laughs> and have worked with Tommy, Tommy and the other case agent, uh, Eric Stouch, for years and linked up with Elaine on some other matters a number of years ago and then uh, started talking to her about this and had the pleasure of watching Tommy and Eric put the case together. Okay. And Elaine, when you decided you wanted to write this, how did you go about, I mean, how did you find the story? I was doing something else. I was in Afghanistan tracking the heroin trade that's paying for that war and several others. And I heard about this guy who was unlike any other organized crime chieftain I had ever heard about. I did a little poking, found out that he was a renegade tech mogul who decided to break really, really bad and go really, really dark and disrupt organized crime in the Silicon Valley sense. Well, Naturally, my husband said, why are you doing anything else? You need to chase that story. And I said, I certainly do. And that's what I did. So I found these gentlemen here and we kept going. Amazing. Can you just give us just for the listeners a brief background about LaRue and kind of what he did? Because it is pretty crazy that he was a what he was a coder. And then he just decided, I'm going to kill some people. <laughs> after, after, well, he started so many other businesses, right? Yes. And then, he said, then got dirty. And, uh, Paul LaRue is originally from colonial Rhodesia. He was born in the British colony. It was an outlaw colony, basically. And the family fled to South Africa when independence took hold there. He grew up pretty comfortably, went to a tech school and learned coding, but he basically taught himself early cybersecurity techniques, which very, very few people know, but he seemed to be a star at that. Until he was about 30, he was floating around Europe and sometimes the United States setting up cybersecurity systems and and secure coding systems for businesses. And then at the age of 30, he went to the south of France and he had an epiphany. He saw the yachts and he said, I want to 
be a billionaire. I want to do that. He set out to be a billionaire, but on the very dark side, he broke bad to Manila and he set up this pharmaceutical company that sold black market pharmaceuticals. He weaponized e-commerce, wake up online shopping, and he combined that with America's other favorite pastime addiction. He didn't sell opioids at first, but he was moving big time in it. So he was basically reinventing the drug business for the 21st century. When he decided to diversify, he got into arms and he got into murder, uh, mostly of subordinates or associates that annoyed him. He got into gold. He got into timber yachts. He was getting into coups, kidnappings, and he was building Amazon for arms in Somalia. He was building a big base where he would ship arms to anybody who wanted them, and he'd get them from anywhere that would sell them. That is fascinating. And I wonder when you're actually hunting somebody like this, how movie-like does it get? I mean, are you guys actually out there? <laughs> I don't know if you guys are winking at each other. I don't know what that means. <laughs> are you out no, there chasing this guy down on yachts? I mean, <laughs> well, here's what I would say. We create an illusion, okay? okay? And we make the illusion as real as possible. Every illusion is created with fact. And a lot of the facts, you know, they are actual things that have occurred to us, actual things we know occur. We just then create them in a narrative to draw people in when we're hunting them. Oh, okay. So when you say it was like a movie, when you're living it and when you're doing it, it's just certainly it's very rich. You know, you're you're getting a glimpse into what somebody really is because they don't obviously know that you're listening to them, that you're recording them, that you've infiltrated them. So that's, in that sense, it's very cinematic, maybe is how you could say it, but it's very truthful and frightening. But that's where you get to see really who they are, and then you can exploit those issues and the weaknesses that you see to build the case like these guys did, and then get them charged with our prosecutorial partners. Right. One of the things we did in this case, which was, when you're doing a case, you're always being very cagey. How much do you want to reveal And how far out do you want to push the guy so it doesn't scare him? In this case, what we did is we had a confidential source slash informant infiltrate who had known LaRue in the past. But he never sent one email without it going through myself and my partner. It kind of worked like an old telegram system. He would say, I received an email from LaRue. It says this. Send it to us. We would then reconstruct what we wanted said, then he, the source would then take it, put it in how he would say it, send it back to us. We would either approve, change, disapprove. And then once it was approved, he would then send it off to LaRue. One of the times I was sitting there, we were going, how are we going to get him to buy into the drug nexus? So we sent him a list of chemicals and I sat down and I wrote out the list of chemicals and it was I was talking to Eric and I said, okay, we've got every precursor for meth in there, but we're not saying meth, okay? Uh And we're like, let's see what he does. And he looked at it and LaRue came back and said, I know exactly what they want. They want meth. (laughs) And we were like, got it. We're in. Uh You know, the the other thing to keep remember is like guys like LaRue and other targets, we know a lot about them. We know the pattern of life. We know what they're involved in. We know they're moving dope. We know that they're moving drugs. We know that we suspect that they're involved in some murders and things like that. Uh So- you try to create a scenario. It's seduction and a manipulation all based upon the law. So you're trying to create something that's going to pull them in and make them vulnerable to prosecution and also arrest. Right. So like what Tommy is saying, exactly right. Let's put it all together, 
pull him in and then try to manipulate him to do what we want him to do. And that sounds terrible. It's not really, but it's really, it's legal treachery. Right. You know? How long have you guys been in the field? How long have you guys been doing this? I've been in law enforcement. I just retired after 28 years. Okay. So yeah, over 20 years and I retired a little over a year ago. So I wanna, we're, we're has-beens now. We're has-beens. <laughs> That's not true. I want to mention that before, Lou was in DEA. He was an actor. You've seen him in movies. Oh. Uh, That's a wild overstatement. <laughs> Does he want you to be telling <laughs> And the stage. And oh, I wow. think that helps set up these scenarios. And Tommy was knocked around and was a cop and has rolled in a lot of filthy alleys with a lot of bad people. <laughs> And he has this uncanny ability to read minds. I wish I had it. So uh, do you mean in terms of convincing people to tell you what you want them to tell you? Or do you mean in terms of... Both. Okay. All of it. To manipulate people. To What is it that LaRue, who's a very, very rich man, what did he want? Right. What did he not have that would get him to come out of his lair, which moved around and come to some place where he could be arrested, which turned out to be Liberia? And the other thing is, is I would say people don't understand the single-minded focus of it. My partner, this was all Eric and I did all the time. And we had a team supporting us, uh, intelligence analyst Carol Dillon, Jim McGill, senior financial analyst, the greatest prosecutors in the world at the Southern District of New York, who you could sit there and go, okay, this is what we're thinking. Does this fit within the law? Because our whole thing is, if it doesn't fit within the law, we're wasting time. Uh -huh. If we can't get you here, we're wasting time. When we prepare a case, we think with the end in mind and then work backwards and kind of develop it like that. And having SDMY being so aggressive, I mean, I just can't even tell you the difference in having prosecutors like SDMY, what a difference it makes to what we try and do. To jump on that. So you're right. Tommy and Eric were the case agents. It's certainly a team approach. And Tommy mentioned some of the people, but if you don't have the prosecutorial partners, you don't get it done because you, they are your partners in the trenches in a sense doing that. And then our foreign counterparts and yeah. our offices, DEA has got like, the largest investigative federal law enforcement presence overseas. Really? It gives I us, didn't know that. Yeah, it gives us yeah. an incredible capability. Now, counterparts, like we mentioned, Liberia, all over the place, the counterparts, the foreign counterparts that will basically know that we'll be in the trenches with them, we'll work with them, we'll hang it out there, and they hang it out there for us. If it wasn't for those foreign counterparts, our prosecutorial partners, the rest of the team, these things don't get done. You, know, right. you kind of check the ego at the door and it's all singularly focused, like Tommy said. Right. Over the past 20 some years, has the act of finding drug criminals changed a lot? I mean, there's a lot more Internet now. There's a lot. Is it more international? Is it more web based? Does it seem different than it used to? Well, look, For that's, me, no. that's, that's what the Internet is all about. The, LaRue moved in and he saw the promise of this technology. And when I say e-commerce, online shopping, that's what he was selling. I mean, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with your credit card at midnight when you're online. And, when you're buying oh, I want that, I want that. <laughs> well, he, you know, some of us do pocketbooks and shoes and he did <laughs> drugs. Uh -huh. well, well, as you said, buying drugs. The analogy I use about Paul LaRue is, he was Silk Road before Silk Road was cool. Right. Okay? Yeah. Silk Road came after Paul LaRue. It may have been up and operating, but Paul was well ahead of that ball game. Right. You know, the classification of him, he is brilliant. Okay? And the other thing is, is you get to know these guys. And 
I don't want to say I know Paul better than anybody, but I would say Eric and I talked to him over 500 times during the course of his, after his arrest. And you get a feel for him and you develop a relationship and albeit you develop a respect. Right. Whether you agree with what he's doing is an entirely different thing. But the man had a single-minded driven focus and he is everything he has predicted that would happen to him after this case, after he was arrested, has happened. But just remember, and I think Tommy would agree with this, he belongs where he is in prison. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's done some incredibly horrible things. And you have to be able to kind of look at and kind of disassociate yourself and be able to look at the puzzle, figure out the puzzle to be effective. I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, he's done some horrible things. But we were also, in the way Tommy and Eric handled him, the proactive piece, had it not been for the ability to get him charged, get him to Liberia, quietly get him back to the United States, the domino pieces wouldn't have fallen. We, we wouldn't have gotten to the, the kill team of former U.S. and foreign military uh, snipers and such, the North Korean meth, all the other parts of that. We wouldn't have gotten to that had it not been the way that they kind of dismantled his mind mm -hmm. and figured out how to put the pieces together. Right. Now that you've got LaRue and I think uh, El Chapo just went down also, uh, who's, who, are we, who are you guys trying to catch next? Like, who's the big one now? Well, I think there's guys out there who everybody <laughs> knows. There's certain names people know that if you're in the narco-terror world, I mean, there's Dawood Ibrahim in Pakistan, who is the biggest and baddest guy out there right now. You know, there's guys in Africa. There are a lot of targets. It's a target-rich environment. And, you know, the, I think the best agents across any agency, investigators, but I know with the EA, are going to want to go after those untouchables that are maybe known, but no one's been able to get to them like what they did with Chapo, and it took so many years, and right. other, other cases that Tommy and I have worked on. There are plenty out there. There are plenty out there. I, I bet. You guys said that the main thing you had to do was figure out what it was LaRue wanted, above and beyond money and luxuries. What did you end up deciding that that was? He was looking for something new, something exciting, something cutting edge, no different than the DEA agents chasing him, looking for the untouchables. And what you noticed was you could attract him with something that's never been thought of. And you could make it the most outlandish thing possible. And Paul would be like, ah, I've never thought of it. And that's what intrigued him. Oh, I would say that that's probably the biggest similarity between like the bad guys and the guys chasing them is it's that chase. It's what's new, what's exciting, what's stimulating you. Right. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I have nothing to add to that. that okay. is, that's right. Awesome. Oh, I actually said it right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep, keep in you mind. You always say it. You always say it right. Keep in mind that the pharmaceutical business, which is, was a cash cow, it's not terribly exciting, but he uh, grossed $300 million in about four years doing that. And that was a cash cow, which enabled him to have more adventures. He's an odd personality from what I understand from you guys. And he doesn't thrill easy. So to find a thrill for him, that was a real test. And you guys passed. The other thing, and I would bring up about the pharmaceutical side of this, is he was ahead of the curve on that, too. Yeah. He was looking at tramadol before tramadol became a hot thing in the United States. Kim Brill, who was the agent out of Minnesota, was doing a tremendous job. We were hoping that she would join team with us and, and prosecute here out of the Southern District of New York, but her leadership chose not to which was a poor decision, and, but that's management's decision, not ours. 
But Kim Brill was an outstanding person who did great work on the pharmaceutical side of this. You know, it's tough. It's a challenge with a target like this. You can get, and we've done it enough times, where you can get sucked into all the noise and the big chart that has a million things. And people can be like, well, your charge is, it's a meth conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. We want to take a very complex guy, complex network, charge him and get him in the most efficient way possible because there will be as many curveballs and complications as we go forward. We've lived in that space. Most DEA agents that grew up and started, whether it's in New York City, in Baltimore, whatever it is, they've done all that stuff their whole careers. And we want to keep it as simple as possible and get a legal, winnable prosecution. Right. Just one last question, because I, we're the most useful podcast ever, and I think it'd be fun. If somebody is trying to spy on their friends and they want to use some DEA tradecraft, what is something you can tell me that you guys use? Flip, flip the best friend. Yep. <laughs> 100%. Connect with the best friend yeah. and get all the information you can. Or the get, girlfriend. Yeah. Get as close as you can to the target. And then even if you have to work your way in, get the vouch and then you're in. Yep. Amazing. Well, thank you, Tommy, Elaine, and Lou. Congratulations, Elaine, on your new book. Uh, that's Hunting LaRue. And thanks again for being on the podcast. That was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Wonderful. Alex George is back on our podcast this week with it. A very unusual sort of event that you went to for Alex George. You're normally driving crazy cars and talking about cool technological advances. And this time you went to the Kitchen and Bath Industry Show in Las Vegas. That's interesting. Why did you do that? I didn't know what to expect. I was... So I usually go out for CES. That's the big consumer electronics show out there. But this one is CES, but entirely faucets, shower heads. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. How, how does the crowd compare? <laughs> Skew's a little bit older, I guess, <laughs> now I think about it. But it's kind of interesting stuff. It's, um, you know, anytime anybody writes about going to a convention, like you went to the you know special forces convention, yeah. any industry has just this huge population of people that make it run and get really excited over these little innovations. So yeah, it was just a completely, a new lesson on uh, in this entire scene for me. So, okay, so you went to the kitchen and bath industry show. What's we, the future of kitchen and bath? Yeah, what is Kitchens the future? Yeah. I, was, I mean, we just talked to James Lynch about going to the outdoor retailer show. Right. And he was saying that there were like vignettes of things and it looked like stores and it looked like people, you know, fake snowboards coming down mountains. Like, could you just take a shower on this on the show floor? <laughs> like, <laughs> There's an entire section that's focused on fixtures and shower heads and all that. And they all work. It's in the middle of this convention floor. I don't know how they do this, Wait, how they seriously? get these things set up, but they have functioning showers and they just run them for eight hours a day to show the water action, the nozzle pressure, all that kind of thing. And it's basically I'm sure like, that's a good use of water in a giant city in the middle of the desert. I was just going to say, like, the height of hubris is yeah. like, let's have a convention in the middle of the desert, the most inhospitable place in the country, and let's run the water all day. Yeah, it's insane. And it's just football fields of this stuff. But you're asking about you know, the technological part of it is, all right, so I'll talk about this first. Alexa Fawcett. What? Like a voice commanded faucet. So what are the commands besides on and off? Here, I'll let you read some of the commands you can give. Okay. okay. Oh, I wish we had one of these and let it do it. Alexa, ask Delta to turn on the water, turn off the water, dispense 100 milliliters. What? Yeah. Alexa, ask Delta to dispense 12 ounces. I mean, if you were cooking, I guess. <laughs> then you're Alexa, a lot ask of... Delta to fill Maddie's cup. Oh, so, you can oh, so it knows what size a cup yeah. is. Mm -hmm. I mean... You see some ridiculous stuff like this, but then you also see stuff like um, the more analog stuff I thought was actually cooler. Like, uh -huh. Okay. So Delta, that's the faucet company. Right. Remember when you started to be able to buy faucets where you pull off the head of the nozzle and you could you know use that to spray down your dishes? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah I like those. They Me have too. this one particular one Delta does where you turn it on 
And it shoots this kind of like a cone of water, like a sealed kind of cone of water around the outside. But in the middle is this like laser force water jet. And the idea is that laser force thing dislodges all your food from whatever thing you're washing, but the cone around it keeps it from splashing outside of the... That's um, amazing. That is a brilliant idea. Wait. Do you want to see? Oh, yes, I do want to see this. What? I do want that. See? It's like a little bell of water with a... Yeah, I like that. A little laser in the middle. I I was going to say, I bet that... There actually is probably a weird amount of crossover between the kitchen and bath industry show and the consumer electronics show that you normally go to because, you know, it's probably not right now. It's a lot of people putting Alexas in faucets and yeah, it's, who knows what they do with toilets. That, uh, <laughs> putting oh, Alexas in toilets. Good transition there. Let me talk to you about the toilet section. So this company, to, uh, Toto, T-O-T-O. Oh, yeah, Toto. You've probably been like, you know, been to a public restroom and seen that lettering somewhere. Yeah. They have one of the largest footprints at this event. They just have this huge display. And right at the front, is it looks like a, I don't know, like a shrine. And it's all toilets. Uh, literally. A shrine of shrines. Porcelain shrines. A shrine of thrones. So they make these, you know, people have known about these for a while. These toilets that are big in Japan where, you know, it's got a bidet built They're in. They're big in Japan. It's, um, the seats are heated. You know, they use the water really efficiently. I think those ones that we're looking at, you can get up to $10,000 for one of them. Wow. Um, Having been to Japan, I honestly, toward the end of the trip to Japan, I was just like... We are supposed to live in a first world country, but I don't understand why we don't have heated toilet seats. Like, if we can't get that together, who that are we, who are we as a nation? Yeah, I, had... I mean, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and you'd be like, oh, I really have to pee. Or like you'd be in like a gas station bathroom and you'd be like, oh, I don't want to sit on this. And then you'd like <laughs> sit down and be warm and you'd be like, oh, wait, right. They're nice here. In it doesn't a gas matter. station? They are nice. They have like... nice toilets in a gas station bathroom. The other thing that everybody talks about this one is having your entire household talk to each other. It's like your refrigerator can coordinate with your, um, with your toilet. Probably. <laughs> he just finished the chili. <laughs> Warm up that seat. It's coming. Oh my God. That's disgusting. Probably. I mean, I guarantee that somebody who was at the convention has put that on a whiteboard in a meeting at some point. <laughs> oh, like, definitely. Defi- I mean, if you work, look, if you work in toilet innovation, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, if you're yeah. not talking, I mean, you're talking yeah. about comfort, but IoT. you're also talking about a lot of things that people don't talk about in meetings. Yeah, I think that's very true. I yeah. think, yeah, those ideas don't always get fleshed out here. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically who the people are who are uh, showing stuff off here. Wow. So was the, the laser faucet your single favorite Ooh. thing you saw? Yeah, that's pretty high up there. It's funny, you just see... You know, these uh, a couple of really premium companies, they make the really expensive faucets fixtures or something like that. And you're like, man, that would be, it makes you envious of like, you know, the really nice, you really covet a whole lot of really nice stuff that comes out of there. Uh, I think the kitchens, those things would be really cool to have. Yeah. I feel like every time I look Love at like that. a home, like what do they call them? Shelter magazines. Every mm-hmm. time I look at a shelter magazine, it's like faucets front to back are all the ads. And I just want faucets and I don't even own a house. I'm just like, I don't know where I'll put all these faucets, but I want them. Yeah. Well, yeah, this sounds like a really, I mean, who comes with these things? Like, I'm imagining people that build hotels, right? Because if you're making so many, like, fancy bathrooms. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of these and, customers like, builders. come from. I think interior designers, maybe. Interior designers. Yeah. They have, like, the fancy faucets, too. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's interior nice. decorators a lot there. And I think people who do, like, if you're in charge of outfitting a, um, like, a gay community or, a, you know, development, and you, need to, oh, right. you want to make every place identical or something like that, that's where I think a lot of these people make the money is just selling a huge supply of... One right. type of faucet. Well, if you're a listener and you want to supply us with a $1,000 toilet, feel free to send us some money because we'd really love one. Yeah. Um, thank most you. useful podcast toilet <laughs> fund. <laughs> yeah. Most useful podcast ever toilet fund. Feel free to contribute. And thanks, Alex, for, for stopping by. Anytime.
It's time again for your favorite segment, Smack Facts. I don't know if we should tell people that this is our favorite segment. Like this one in also, particular. Yeah, is this time again dark? for the segment that's really dark on this podcast and you really shouldn't even listen to it? Smack Facts. Second after school special segment. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, we had two DEA agents on this podcast, so we mm-hmm. already we know what where we stand on on the drug crisis. We're not pro drugs. Don't do drugs. Anti. Did they call it smack? Do who did the DEA the, agents? Like, do you think they're allowed no. to say smack, or do they have to? Well, I mean, they have some of them are kind of undercover cops, right? Like, you can't go in and be like, "Do you have any heroin?" I don't think that works. Yeah, but I mean, like when they're talking, I don't know, when they bust everyone and it's on the table, they're not like, "This is a hundred pounds of smack." They probably can't say that. <laughs> Don't you feel like they get so into their roles? Like, I feel like I'm imagining... They can't like, turn it off? Yeah, I mean, well, the guys that were here, like, the one guy who, like, worked in the office was a little bit more straight-laced, but mm-hmm. the other guy, you know, he's like a street cop. He seemed like he says smack. That's what I think. The other thing I want to say before we start is I now feel like maybe the DEA, but also probably Hirsch, is, like, paying attention to what I do on my computer now, because I just <laughs> spent, like, two hours Googling a heroin yesterday, which is... Not really what you're supposed to do. Yeah. No work. But one, it's for work. One time we were trying to look up, so ISIS has its own magazine. Oh, yeah. Um, and really? We were, do you remember this? Yeah. We were trying to look it up and I was like, I'm on every government watch list now. It's also a horrifying now. magazine. Is it? It's really, it is. Yeah. Anyway, this is Smack Facts. This okay. is not about ISIS. So Smack Facts. Yes. So first, because I love me some etymology, I looked up the word heroin. It comes from a German word, actually. Heroish. Because the drug makes users feel heroic, euphoric, and strong, basically. It first came to the States in, like, at the tail end of the 1800s, basically because there was a morphine crisis going on, and heroin was seen as a way to wean people off morphine. So sort of like the modern day, like, Naxalone, I guess, or or methadone. I was going to say, I get the impression that the U.S. in the late 1800s was like a real drug den. Yeah. Like well, I mean, country. Coca-Cola, yeah. I mean, all this stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. So the Pure Food and Drug Act, which was basically when medicines were required to say what was in them, didn't pass until 1906. And it, it basically came out that there was this one heroin product called Habitina that was being marketed as... That's quite a name. You yeah. would use it to break your habit. But it contained more morphine, which is, you know... What? Not <laughs> ideal, as well as heroin and caffeine. Wow. So it's like a like a sort of speedball. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't probably delivering the results that it, it I mean, promised. did people die? Was there just like if you marketed something back then that had all that in it and you and they took it a lot? I don't think you could they... be held accountable for it. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Getting off the history train. This was my favorite heroin fact that I learned, which is a weird sentence to say out loud. But do you guys know the song a Horse With No Name by the yeah. band America? Yes. Okay. You know how the lyrics are weird and make no sense? And yeah. Are, they don't make any sense at all. There are lines like, after three days in the desert, the heat was hot. That's yeah. my personal favorite. One would think that. Yeah, One would think. True, yeah. But Grandma's apparently dry. when it came out in the 70s, people thought that it was a song about heroin because horse is a slang term for heroin. I wonder how that happened. And it was banned from radio stations. Wait, seriously? Really? Yeah. Kansas City and a couple other local radio stations like refused to play it because they thought that it was encouraging drug use. Whoa. But it turns out the guy, Dewey Bunnell, who wrote the song, said that it was about the actual literal desert. He was like, I was in England and it was cold and rainy and I was thinking about the desert. Well, that's what the musicians always say. That's true. Who knows? Who knows? I feel like just because I'm obliged to not make heroin sound fun, (laughs) I should note that um, in several countries, if you traffic heroin, you get the death penalty. Mm, That's not surprising. And that's harshest in Southeast Asia and Middle Eastern countries, which is ironic because... I think something like 50% of 
the world's poppy supply, which is what heroin is made out of, comes from Afghanistan and, and related Middle Eastern mm-hmm. countries. Cool. Is that a... Yeah, I feel like we should we should end on a low uplifting note. general note. No, 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 uh, no, it should not be uplifting. Uh, it yeah. could be like here's how, you, here's how you kick your habit. I don't know. That's a fact. I mean, it can be nice, servicey. They have methadone. Go Meth- to yeah, you, go to a you, methadone clinic. If you have a heroin problem, please go to a clinic and or go to rehab. It's not yeah. good for you. That's and that's been, been heroin facts. Smack <laughs> Sorry, smack facts. Smack facts. That's been smack facts. So this segment is just called Kevin's Going to the Rodeo. <laughs> it doesn't I'm even... very excited. I don't you say that like it's funny. I um, think it's great. What rodeo are you going to? Also, uh, should we say it's not the rodeo. It's a professional bull riding circuit. I pretended like I didn't know where he was going. I do know where he's going. <laughs> You're going to the, uh, it's the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo is the oh, so official name. It's like a, well, it's like a huge all-encompassing event. It's crazy. So I'm like, only going like to the final day, which I believe is the bull riding championships championship day, like yeah. the final thing. But there's also... Like, there are many components to this rodeo, which is part of why I'm so excited. About right. It. First of all, there's a lot of different events involved in a rodeo. Well, that was the thing. Someone like... told me you can't call it a rodeo. It was a PBR. Oh, event. I see. That was, and I don't, but I don't know what oh. the distinction was. I just was corrected many times. Like, this rodeo is awesome. I'm like, it's not a rodeo. So you can't even say this isn't your first rodeo because you have not, <laughs> this in fact, this isn't your first PBR. You have not, in fact, yeah. been to a rodeo. <laughs> So rodeo actually started as a way for cattle herders in basically the entire new world from South America all the way up to Canada, including, well, it's not including that because they're different, but <laughs> Australia and New Zealand. Um, all the di- <laughs> I, Once they were touching like you millions of years I mean. ago. All of those countries basically have rodeo and it was people who were originally vaqueros and then cowboys to show off what they could do. And then it became this huge competition. It is the official state sport of Wyoming, South Dakota and Texas. And the one in Houston is bananas. It's so big. It was started in 1932. Oh. And attendance last year was 2.4 million. Wow. What? Yeah, it's absolutely enormous. It's not just the events. So they have the events in the arena. They also have concerts. And then they have they also have a carnival outside. The most popular event at the Houston Rodeo is Mutton Bustin', which Kevin already Wait, knows Wait, that's about. the most popular one? It <laughs> I don't really know what it is, though. Well, you're going to find okay, out. Okay, so five and six-year-old kids grab onto the back of a sheep <laughs> and try to hold on <laughs> while it sprints across the arena. It is so cute. Like, they basically put, the, I watched so many videos of this, they basically, like, put the kid on there and they're like, hold on, kid. And the, the sheep runs and the kids usually slide kind of around it, like they slide <laughs> yeah. slightly underneath it and then they fall off and that's it. And they run out and pick up the kid. And no one cries. It's great. It's adorable. Afterwards, sometimes they do like a little post-game interview and they're like, what'd you think when the sheep started running? And the kid's like, I don't know. I tried to hold. I mean, it's so cute. That's amazing. <laughs> and can you imagine doing that like when you're six and doing that in the center of the Houston Texans stadium, oh, which awesome. I'm pretty sure is where it is. Yeah. It's a uh, uh, energy NRG yeah. stadium. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's the Houston Texans stadium. Yeah. Right? yeah okay. All I know is it's so big. There's like eight tiers of seating. Like I bought <laughs> tickets. I just did best available, which they were already almost sold out, even though I did this the day of like the website kept crashing. It took me half an hour to get the tickets. Wow. And like the best available was like the sixth or seventh tier is like 20 bucks. So <laughs> there's still people above that. And that was like, wow. so the tickets just get you in for like that whole day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I have one more amazing fact, but I'm gonna let Peter go because I feel like well, you have some, you said you had some tips. Did we ever say, so I feel very misled by my assumptions about this, about this segment. segment. <laughs> <laughs> did we say that, so Kevin is going and as people who have seen rodeos or I guess in my case, a professional bull riding event, we wanted to give him some tips on how to enjoy it. Oh, uh, I think you've misconstrued that. I thought we were going to, we we're going to give him some, some well, facts. I find rodeos. both useful. So. These are, yeah, see, we're, we're just taking so different was, angles. That was the direction I went with this. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think rodeo is like a cowboy skills challenge. And I went to a bull riding event and they, that was where I was corrected many times that it was not a rodeo. But my biggest advice to you, Kevin, 
on your rodeo day. <laughs> <laughs> on your big upcoming rodeo day. <laughs> is pick a guy or, I mean, there were no women in our bull riding event. And this is based only on bull riding because I haven't seen the other parts of a rodeo. So you're on your own for those. But pick somebody. It makes it so much more fun. We did. We met Cody Nance, who's one of the guy, one of the big guys. To just have them be like my hero. And then it was just cool to cheer for him when he came out. Though each time, I was like, is that, is that Cody? Is that Cody? And then we were so excited. There's also a guy named, I'm going to tell you who your guy should be because he has such a great name, Chase Outlaw. Chase oh, Outlaw? that is an amazing He's name. He's currently number three. I looked. I did not know this. I looked it up before it came in here. <laughs> But if you want to pick a guy, then you look out for Chase Outlaw. It's pretty fun. And to then have. you can okay. then you can lean over to Laura, who is your fiance, and say, "This is our guy, Chase yeah. Outlaw." Chase Outlaw. Like, How three. do you know this? <laughs> yeah. You'll just be like, "This is Chase Outlaw," and then it'll be like, "Next up, Chase Outlaw," <laughs> yeah. and you'll be like, "What?" And then she'll want to marry you all over That's again, right. even though yeah. she hasn't yet. I'm su- you know, I'm surprised you didn't ask her at the uh, <laughs> at, at, at the rodeo. Houston rodeo. Yeah. yeah. I still can. I can put up on the jumbotron. <laughs> Just do it again. Yeah, why not? She'll be really surprised. <laughs> That's true. That'd be great. Okay, are you ready for my yeah. my rodeo fact? Only one person in the history of rodeo has ever gotten a perfect score on a bull ride. What? Uh, a perfect There's score. There's a movie about this guy, right? Yeah. A perfect score is 100 points, and they score both the person and the bull, and there's two judges. So each judge can give 25 points to the rider and 25 points to the bull. So the, the points to the rider is for your perfect ride, and then the points for the bull is for the bull being the most unrideable bull <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. And so the guy who got the 100 points is Wade Leslie. He did it in Central Point, Oregon in 1991 by riding an absolutely rip-roaring crazy bull <laughs> named Wolfman Skull. Wolfman Skull? Wolfman Skull. Yeah. And then later, he actually got in a car accident and is now in a wheelchair. And there is a we document. Were, there is. Bring it why did you end Sorry with that? that? I wasn't going to say that, <laughs> well, but that's why there's a, do- that's why there's a was, documentary about him. I was thinking the wrong movie. I was Uh-oh. thinking of Eight Seconds with Luke Perry, which you should also watch. Oh, that's another rodeo fact. <laughs> about a famous rodeo guy who died, but Luke Perry rides the bull for eight seconds in honor of this guy and keeps riding after the bell goes. He oh. just keeps riding because he loves him so much. That is something you do need to know about rodeo is they don't get scored unless they stay on for eight seconds. And they also can't touch the bull yeah. with their free hand, which is why they wave it all around. Oh. All crazy. So yeah. you just it's just like a disqualification if you yes. don't last eight seconds. if you don't last eight, and eight seconds. And they tie their hand down to the horn of the, the saddle or whatever it is. It's that so scary. Risky. That's how they get stuck sometimes when you see Wait. the guy like running beside it freaking out. Yeah. Okay. Are rodeo clowns like that's a real thing? Right? Yeah, it's like, the, I'm gonna see so that. They're cool. not, I can't wait. They're not called rodeo clowns right. anymore officially. Is that but insensitive? Th- um, I guess so. They are. They're called like bullfighters. Actually, they? Makes, they, well, their job. Their job is like a great rebranding. <laughs> <laughs> like we used to be rodeo clowns. Now we're bullfighters. No, bull there's just one guy working on his resume. He's like, this is embarrassing. He's like, I mean, I don't got gored. I don't feel like I'm <laughs> yeah. a clown. But yeah, they basically prevent the bull from killing the guy that's trying to ride it after they fall off. Which is useful. That's a very, yeah, that's a very that's, good people to have around. Dangerous. You're probably the most dangerous sport. Yeah, people call it the most dangerous eight seconds in sports. That's the. It's crazy. Thing. Yeah, I would never do this. I wonder how hard it is to get life insurance as a bull as rider, a bull, like a bull rider or like a rodeo club. Yeah, it must be very expensive. Yeah, uh, have fun at the rodeo, Kevin. <laughs> I'll report back. So for today's testing table, we are testing sawdust, which is not something you can buy. Well, you can buy sawdust. You can prob- you buy sawdust? You probably can. Um, I don't know. Roy we, would. I bet Roy has. No, Roy no always way. has sawdust. He would say, never buy it. Roy saws things a lot. So yeah, he but gets... when he's like in a moment of desperation, he hasn't had a project in a while. When is that? That's true. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds more unreasonable the more I say it. Well, this sawdust it was made in-house. This was like, we made this it's sawdust. From, uh, I think he said it was from a circular saw test. Okay. So we had a whole box of sawdust and Roy started working on a story for our website 
about all the uses of it. Yeah. And apparently one is sopping up spills. So we are going to sop up some spills on what is this like? This is like <laughs> Kevin, you seem to have spilled in three distinct places. <laughs> I, know. I feel like I'm it's like an infomercial. Like now what I have here is I've set out three different globs. <laughs> three different globules of globulous substances. The one thing that will make this not sound like an infomercial is that Kevin was completely covered in honey before <laughs> this, he was setting this I up. I really felt like a bear who'd like reached into a honeycomb. Like it was just dripping off my hands onto the table and I don't just, know. We were all like setting up the recording equipment and Kevin was like, guys, I need paper towels. What is happening? I did resist the urge to just like lick it off my hands because you yeah, guys were sitting here. That was here. a lot of honey to lick off if your I, hands. But too. I would have done it. If you I was also, by myself, for sure I would have done it. You also just were pouring paint and like motor oil, right? So I feel like but the, maybe the, don't the honey was mostly the thing. So it's paint, oil, and honey. Okay. What kind of paint is it? This is Benjamin Moore Advance, which is what I used... For the, I probably talked about the Kitchen Island project I was doing on think, here at some point. Did you talk about that? Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure I did. It's so, beautiful. yeah. It is beautiful. Um, Kevin did a very good job. So, this is according to Roy. This is like very nice paint. I mean, it was it was good paint as far as I could tell, but I'm not an expert. But according it's just a Roy, latex it's great paint. paint. So, yeah. So, regular latex paint. And then the oil is three in one. It's like small motor oil. So, these are just things that you might spill on the ground. I don't know why there's honey out in your shop, but. <laughs> If you take honey out there, you're going to spill it but is I what I've like honey, learned. Honey is a good proxy for like maybe sticky sorts of things right. that you might- It can't like, get I'm, worse than honey. Right. Honey's, right. Yeah. honey's pretty bad. Liquid. Anyway, uh, what do we do here? Should we just- Yeah. So, our... well, we have a box of sawdust. Okay. I'm and gonna, we're, we're just going to sprinkle it on all of these. And then you just let it, you have to like, let it sit for a little bit. our sound of our box of sawdust. It's a lot of sawdust. <laughs> so you've made three, how big are those piles, would you say? Like um, salad plate? They're like smaller than an IHOP pancake, but bigger than a silver dollar pancake. All right. Let's see. Worked. How do you test and see if it worked? Also, what are we going to put this in? <laughs> That's, well, well, grab a garbage can. Kevin's so, honey hand. So, Kevin's can. honey hand. All right, which one do you want to start with? You want to start uh, with paint? Paint well, seems reasonable. The honey has to be less. Yeah. <laughs> that, that much I know. So, Roy just basically says, because I haven't tried this before, but when I worked on this Kitchen Island project, Roy was constantly being like, man, that's some pretty good sawdust. We shouldn't just throw this away. Yeah. And then he was like, yeah, it's like really useful for cleaning stuff up. So, but he always said, just let it sit for a little bit. So it really like soaks it in, which in fact, he said softwoods because they're more absorptive. Like oh. he said, pine is like the ultimate. Right. Did you say absorptive? Absorptive. Oh, absorptive. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Isn't that that's the word? I would say absorbent, but absorptive sounds well, it's even fancier. I just edited the story and that's how Roy said it. But that's a word, right? I assume I mean, so. Roy has his own language too. Uh, um, okay, so but what I actually think we need to do is like stir it up a little bit. Okay. Um, because Make right now, absorptivize the. Yeah, the because right now the top, the sawdust on top is not. It's true. Absorptivizing. You know, so that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> the dryness of it is what is my favorite part, Peter. Okay. <laughs> it's not absorptiving. It looks. You're doing all right. So you're making some clumps. Wow. You got some kitty litter I, sawdust happening in your glue pile. Well, right. Okay. Is kitty kitty litter is made of clay? I don't know. Would kitty litter also work for this? I have yeah. no idea, and I'm not getting a cat for anybody listening that might live with me. I think it <laughs> <laughs> it definitely works. Who could you say, Who could you mean? Like spilled motor oil and stuff. You're supposed to use kitty litter to because then you can scoop it up. Right. But this is free kitty litter. Okay, and the three in one oil is is coming up pretty well. So I'm seeing there's still like a little stain on the bottom so far. Although I yeah, guess we'll we see. did. We also did have these things sitting here for a little while before. That's true. And what, this Although is, this we did is say metal. This is a, it's a piece of sheet metal, which we picked specifically because Roy said if you really want to test it, put it on something that's not porous, that's not going to absorb very much. So right. in fairness, it shouldn't really absorb very much. Right. Oh boy, the honey. Oh, yeah, the, honey. the honey. I think it'll work. You just have to really roll it around. You're going to have to really roll it. And then you're going to have what looks like a delicious honey coconut treat. But don't eat it. But it is not that. Just so put do it in the pantry. 
see if anybody else grabs Don't it. Don't eat it. Your honey, you're actually moving the whole stack honey, of honey around. Honey's killing it. Although we should also point out that Kevin is using a, what, two-inch putty knife to move this stuff? That is a, I mean, it seems like a smart idea because it's you're going to yeah. try to get off. You're not, it's not a broom or something silly. So when, I, Well, Roy actually says that if it's, I mean, I assume probably if you put down enough sawdust, in the story online, he says, you know, scoop up the wet stuff, scoop up the dry stuff. So right. it seems like ideally if you're cleaning this up in your shop, it's kind of a two-part thing. So you are going to have the... like this like soggy, clumpy things you don't want to get on your broom. Right. But then you're going to have still like a lot of dry stuff. When you first mentioned this, I was like, this seems like it's going to just make more of a mess because then you have like gnarly, silly little wood chip <laughs> chunks everywhere. You know, like that's crazy. But now that I'm thinking about it, if you have a shop vac... This is kind of perfect because, like, yeah. look how easy that honey was well, to get up, and then you just like shop back the heck out of it. Except, why wouldn't you just shop back up the oil? Because you're not gonna. How are you gonna get? Like, I feel like oil or paint isn't gonna get. It's not all gonna come up. You know right? what I mean? It's not gonna come up entirely. Right. Okay. So basically, the honey was so sticky that the honey still left like a sticky coating with a sawdust angel on the ground. Yeah. The paint mostly came up. There's still definitely a stain where it was sitting there. And then, you know, the oil similarly has like a little bit of a stain so spot. So should but... we should we wipe it? Let's like put all the sawdust into a trash can. And Will maybe... you touch the honey spot with your finger? Why? Why don't you do it? Because <laughs> I'm too far away. Here, I'll do it. To see if the... You guys are ridiculous. Well, because if the stuff... <laughs> I just had honey Let's over see. my hand. It is not sticky. It's not sticky. No, it's okay. not So that's great. Because it's got little itty bitty fine also, sawdust. Also, say this is your garage floor. You don't need to be perfect. You just don't want to leave like a big puddle of stuff there. So yeah. you just do this a honey you would, you, would just leave, yeah. <laughs> you would just leave sawdust honey all over yeah. your... You're going to get so many ants. I would absolutely leave this little sawdust honey. I'm not going to come out there with a sponge and water and clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So All right, yeah, I'm let's, go let's in the toss trash. it and then let's maybe like wipe it off or see what happens if we. All right. So now we should wipe it with what, a wet paper towel? Yeah. We'll try a dry paper towel first and see what happens. See if anything. And then maybe let's try a wet paper towel. Oh, Here's a... my last one. What are, you, what are you writing on there? I was writing notes. <laughs> okay. So that honey is not. Yeah. The honey is like. And neither is the paint. I mean, but the, I mean paint, the oil, the oil still has a fine. spot, but it's yeah. like for sure. I mean, there's not, there's no residue from the oil. Also, right. The oil. There's no residue from the oil. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's try a wet paper towel, and then I think we can we can deliver our verdict. <laughs> you can pause it if you want. Yeah, we'll pause it for a sec. Now we're back for now real. we're back. Okay, so Kevin did some cleaning. Kevin did some cleaning, and surprisingly, it looks like and like weirdly now the honey is the cleanest. I was gonna say it like really got rid of the honey. There's a the honey you can't tell anything happened. The oil there's like a little bit of a stain, a slick, but there's no yeah a little oil slick, but there's no it's not oily to the touch. And then there's like a little bit of a paint stain. Right, but again, it's your garage floor. Yeah, it's fine. So, yeah, yeah. No, this that, is a perfectly were... acceptable garage floor. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so sawdust, we all agree, is a good. I mean, it's free. And it's something you have a lot of because, like, how often do you only spill that much paint? You right. know, like, you're probably cleaning up a bigger mess. Right. Sawdust is a very cheap way to take care of it. If you accidentally spilled a whole can of paint or, like, most of a can of paint, like you kicked it over or something and you're just like, uh, I feel like that's the most efficient way to clean it up because, like, paper towels, you'd be in there for weeks. You're not going to use, like, yeah. how many rags do you have? Right. Not enough. Yeah. So... I think Save your sawdust, sawdust, and a shop back. Yeah, you're good to go. And I will say, I'll just add one one last thing. Roy made a point of telling me once he was like, the amount of sawdust you create from a table saw is like more than you would ever use. So it's also That's if you nice. have a table saw, it's like basically an infinite resource. Yeah. Too. and you have to clean it up anyway. So just yeah. put it in a box and save it. I wanted to add a little useful cleanup tip that I learned from an interior designer when I spilled salad dressing on her daughter's fancy. It's a little thing called you put your feet on by a chair. Uh, ottoman. ottoman? Yeah, on an ottoman. Um, salt. Took the entire thing out. I was so freaked out. 
because I spilled this dressing all over this beautiful, expensive thing. And she called her mom and her mom was just like, put salt on it, leave it for a day. It sucked the stuff back out. What kind of dress are we tell. talking? Like a vinaigrette? Just like an Italian, like a, an oily, it's like a vinaigrette. an oily dressing. Yeah. Um, so I, we just had a red wine spill and we used salt and club soda. It's amazing. It was pretty effective. So wow. maybe not on your garage floor, but if you mess up an ottoman at a friend's place. It's, or any other upholstered yeah. item, presumably. Yeah. What I was going to say is we also have this uh, Gojo Natural Orange Pumice Hand Cleaner, which is what so Roy uses to clean his it's hands. It's amazing. It's so yeah. good. But he he has his trick of if his hands are really painty, he said, mix that with sawdust and use that to get all the paint off your hands and then wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Which when I, I mean, if you get paint on your hands, it's like a day of washing your, whole, yeah. your hands. Yeah. I feel like I've washed my hands forever, it seems like. <laughs> After I painted that caught. kitchen island, I just gave up. I was like, I'm just going to have paint hands for a week. Right. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Honey and that's where used to be. Honey hand, paint, paint hand. Oh, honey, paint hand, Kevin. <laughs> honey hand, the honey hand bandit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.